Thank you, Pastor Chad. I'm just curious, in your lesson this morning in Christian Growth Group, which is a very, we've had some powerful doctrinal lessons, I, I just wonder, the, the discussion on the subject of hell, did uh, any of your teachers happen to bring into the discussion uh, the town of hell in Michigan? I, I'm just curious. You know, we did missions work in Detroit. Uh, we were there for, you know, a, a week, several summers in a row, and, you know, you think about Michigan, you know, windy, been cool, cold, whatever. But actually, you know, during the summer, it got pretty toasty up there. And um, and so, you know, I was commenting to one of the parishioners up there. You know, it's pretty hot up here in Detroit. I'm surprised being up here from the south and all. And they said, man, if you think it's hot here, you ought to go with me to hell. And I said, well, no, thank you, you know. They said, no, 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 really, there's a town, and it's in the lowlands of, of, of the land of Michigan, and it's actually called hell. Can you imagine, you know, greetings from hell, you know, writing to your friends, sending cards, you know. Anyway, I don't know what possesses people, but anyway, I'm just curious if anybody happened to bring that out this morning. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, first of all, to the book of Revelation. I know we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2. But there's a passage there as we consider the, the, type, the, the title of the lesson and the, the message this morning, Signs of a Vital Church. Uh, I thought it was interesting as, as we look back in the book of Revelation, particularly in chapter 3, you understand that Jesus is uh, speaking to the churches through John in this great revelation. Uh, he talks to the, the churches, uh, the faithful church there at Philadelphia. He talks to the lukewarm church at Laodicea. He talks to the loveless church at Ephesus. He talks to the persecuted church at Smyrna and the corrupt church at Thyatira. But I want you to look with me in chapter 3 as he's writing to the church at Sardis. And I want you to listen to the words of the Lord to the church at Sardis and let it uh, maybe help you to set the tone for the message this morning. Uh, begin reading with me in verse 1, Revelation chapter 3. And the Lord is speaking here through John. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Just think about that. You have a reputation. You think you are. And others around you think that you are alive. Jesus says, but i got news for you. You're dead. That'd be pretty sobering, wouldn't it? To get in a letter from the Lord. Talk about the rude awakening. In verse 2 he says, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember therefore how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. This morning, as I indicated, as we look back into Acts chapter 2, as we continue in our, our exposition of this powerful historical book in the, in, in the Bible, uh, the life of the church, the early church, one of the things that we want to consider as we look at this church that was birthed uh, here in, in, in Acts chapter 2 and, and proceeding, is that it was indeed a vital church. And if you look in your dictionary, vital means has life. 
If something is, 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 has vitality, it has vibrance, it has dynamo, it has life in it. And so we're going to be looking at chapter 2, beginning in verse 40. I know we said verse 42, but we'll look at verse 40. But, but you know, in my 30 years of gospel ministry and traveling about the state, and I'm not an evangelist, so I don't get into a whole lot of churches, but I've been in quite a few churches over these decades of ministry and all across the state of North Carolina and, and in, in other states too. And one of the things, you know, churches are like people. They're just as different as, as night and day. They're different personalities. You know, big churches, small churches, rural churches, urban churches, you know, different socioeconomic, you know, levels and, and different traditions and things like that. And, and so I've been in, you know, churches and some of the churches that I've been in, you know, I have walked away with the impression, you know, from all indications, this is a church. That is very much alive, like the church at Sardis, if you will. And churches and congregations can give the impression, I mean, that they are indeed alive. Big building campaigns and endeavors, numerous programs addressing just about every possible human need of the Western culture and programs to, to go along with that. Many activities and entertaining and engaging and satisfying worship gatherings and all of that. And it gives the appearance that it's healthy and spiritually vibrant when in actuality, when held up against the spiritual standards of what a healthy church is according to the Word of God, the church is really not spiritually healthy. It's actually not. Many of its members are spiritually sick, unhealthy, carnal. In fact, some of them, unfortunately, are spiritually dead. And yet they're on the church roll. They're unregenerate. I heard um, a powerful preacher at a conference weekend last weekend, uh, Richard Owen Roberts. He's only 82 years old. Preached for an hour and 45 minutes and it seemed like it was 30 minutes. But you know, he made a comment that you've probably heard Dr. Billy Graham make. He says, I'm thoroughly convinced that 70% of the people sitting in church pews today are absolutely unregenerate. So you see, a church can give appearances that is healthy, that is vibrant, that it's alive, when in actuality it's, it's not. And there may be elements of spiritual deadness existing in the context of that congregation. Our own church was hurting and spiritually unhealthy. God heard our humble pleas and prayers for biblical revival, and He took us through a process of transformation that led us away from cultural influences and, and self-centered tendencies and trends through painful purging and purifying and right back to the Bible and to our Baptist heritage. And through that process, God has helped us to emerge a more healthy church. A church with hope for real, genuine, spiritual life. In that process, guided by the Word of God, guided by the Spirit of God, we identified seven crucial core values that we said would define who we are and would define what we do. Nothing beyond that. Number one, prayerful dependence. At the heart of the church, the dynamo, the lifeblood of the church is prayer. And dependent upon God in prayer is absolutely essential. Another of the core values, biblical leadership. 
Not just having leaders to reflect the corporate world out there, but to have leaders who represent biblical leaders, identified in the Scripture, who are qualified according to the Scriptural teachings and the organization given to us in the ecclesiology of the, of the Scriptures. Biblical church membership. Not just gathering big numbers of having so many people on the church roll so we can boast about how big the church is, but knowing that every member of the church meets the standards for what it means to be a member of the body of Christ. Biblical church membership. Authentic Christian relationships. No, we're not a social club. But as a family, as a body of believers, we need to engage in authentic Christian relationships. And I thank the Lord, I thank the Lord for the, the experiences in our home group. Uh, if you're not engaged in, in one of the home groups, I tell you, that is a, a very valuable thing because where we gather in small groups and we share, we study the scriptures some, we pray together, we share about ourselves, we get to know each other. Listen, being in the worship gathering is wonderful and great. You meet each other, you greet each other, but you won't develop meaningful, authentic relationships in a large setting like this. It requires intimacy in small groups before that. So authentic Christian relationships, another core value we identified was biblical corporate worship. When we gather together, we're not in here to, to entertain. It's not for your pleasure and enjoyment. God is the one who receives the pleasure. God, it's all about Him. It should be God-centered. It should please Him. It's us worshiping Him. Biblical corporate worship and then mission mentality. Being able to look outside of the walls of the church and realize that God has placed us here providentially for a purpose. I'm so thankful that on Sunday evenings many of you come and engage in our community kids club where we do. Roll up our sleeves and get involved in the lives of these boys and girls and, and pray that God will help each and every one of them to come to know Jesus Christ. There are hurting people out there in the community. There are lost people out there in the community. Well, a church that is healthy and vibrant must have a mission mentality. Also, it must practice biblical dis discipleship. I thank God for all of the teachers in our church. And we're so blessed to have some very qualified and dedicated and passionate teachers of the Word of God. If you're not in Christian growth group on Sunday mornings, dear friend, you're missing out on one of the best things this church has to offer, and that is the teaching of the Word of God. And then, finally, the church must be gospel-centered. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, first the Jew and then the Gentile. Listen, we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. It ought to be the driving force that moves us out into the world to fulfill the Great Commission. So you see, these core values that we have identified to guide our church, actually, we went back to this model that you see in the book of Acts. I mean... Where else would you go to find a perfect model to pattern yourself after as a church? If you want to be a vital church, if you want to be a dynamic church, if you want us to be a spiritually alive church. Listen, there's not been a healthier, more spiritually dynamic church in the world to date than this church that was born there in Jerusalem. It wasn't a big mega church down in a former Colosseum down in Texas somewhere. I guarantee you, that's not the model church. The model church is right here in the pages of God. And it was birthed right there by the 
but by the Holy Spirit of God 2,000 years ago in the heart of the city of Jerusalem, a short distance from the very place where Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was crucified and buried and rose from the grave three days later and subsequently, after revealing Himself to many, ascended into heaven to be at the right hand of God the Father. This is where the church was born. And this is what God did, a great work. And that's, so upon close examination of the scriptural record in this church example, uh, this is what we use to develop our, our core values. And out of this pattern, as we look in Acts chapter 2, we see a church that is spiritually alive. It is divinely energized. It is highly effective. And we're going to look at some of the characteristics because it was a church devoted to discipleship. It's no good, folks, to have your name on the roll of a church if your name is not on the roll of the church. Doesn't matter how fancy and how impressive the church that your membership resides or rests on the membership roll, if your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, you're not on the church roll. It doesn't matter. I'm convinced, as Brother Owen said, there are many people whose names are on the rolls of churches. They're going to die and wake up in the fires of hell and be punished for eternity and eternity. You talk about a rude awakening. And the early church consisted of people who were devoted to genuine disciples because their enrollment included true disciples of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 40 of chapter 2. And with many other words, he, Peter, testified and exhorted them saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. In other words, he's saying... Save yourself from this spiritually bankrupt generation that's steeped in Judaism and a hollow, superficial religion. Religion won't save you, Peter says. Run from it. Save yourself from it. Verse 41, Then those who gladly received His Word were baptized, and no baptism doesn't save you. Baptism doesn't wash away your sins. We just sang about it, didn't we? It's the blood. Nothing but the blood. The baptism waters symbolize what has transpired spiritually in you. And we have some misguided denominations, unfortunately, that take that out of context and twist it and try to make it say that you have to be baptized to be saved. Oh, no, you don't. Read the rest of the Bible. Read the rest of Paul's writing and understand exactly what it says there. You repent. You believe. Then you're saved and you go to the baptismal waters as a testimony of what God has done so wonderfully in your life. That's what the people were doing. Now understand, baptism wasn't just some sweet little ritual that you did back in those days. For a Jew to participate in Christian baptism and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, do you understand what a risk they were taking? To be publicly baptized was to turn your back on Judaism, in essence. 
And some people took the risk of losing their jobs, maybe their homes, maybe their family, maybe their friends. All listen, it was a big deal when a person stepped into the baptismal waters and was baptized by one of those apostles. Listen, other people were watching. It was a powerful testimony. And they were saying, basically, I don't care what the costs are, I'm following Jesus. Isn't that what discipleship is? Didn't the Lord Jesus say in Luke 9.23, If any man come after me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross and follow me. Oh, listen, Jesus didn't say take up your cushions and your easy chair and come on and live the easy life. There's nothing about the genuine Christian life that is easy. It's sacrifice. It's determination. It's discipline. And so the members, the membership was made up of followers of Christ. Members who demonstrated repentance. And that word repentance in the Greek, metanaio, means to turn around. The members of the church were turning their back on empty, superficial Judaism. And they were turning to the Lord Jesus Christ, the crucified, resurrected Son of God. And they were walking away. From that which would not save them towards the one who died to save them. And the same thing, the church today has to be made up of members who have truly taken that step of faith and are following after Christ. And you'll note there in verse 41, that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Well, you talk about church growth. And it wasn't through gimmicks or enticing programs. It was powerfully the Spirit of God drawing people that God had chosen. God had elected. God had given faith to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. God added to the numbers. And we'll see that as we go further. But also in addition to being a membership made up of true disciples... In their devotion to discipleship, there was teaching of the Word of God. It was essential to those early believers. Look at verse 42. And verse 42 is actually a summary. It's interesting because it summarizes the rest of the chapter. But as you look there in verse 42, one of the first things that you note that those early... Now, now when it says they, it means they. That means the 3,000 that were born again, saved, plus the 120, the original... And they were all, they were all continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They were being taught. They readily came to hear Peter. Can you imagine sitting in Peter's and James's and the sons of thunder teaching your Christian growth group? Can you imagine them teaching about walking on the water? Of the Sea of Galilee? Can you imagine where they got to the lesson when they were talking about Jesus feeding the 5,000? And Peter said, I just, I can't understand. It just kept coming. It kept coming. James said, that's right. We emptied those baskets, but they kept filling up. We had leftovers, guys. Can you imagine? They were teaching what they had observed firsthand. They were teaching what they knew in their hearts because they had been taught themselves the Word of God by who? By God Himself. And the reason they were so diligent in teaching the Word of God is so that the pupils, the learners, would be serious and committed and themselves become teachers. See, Jesus had a plan. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 40, He says, The pupil, the student, is not greater than the teacher. 
So y'all remember that when you're sitting in your te- Christian growth group. Don't be sitting up there all cocked up and, you know, yeah, teacher, try to, try to learn me something. <laughs> no, no. Jesus said that the, the student is not greater than the teacher, but everyone, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like the teacher. Do you understand? This is your goal as a student in your Christian growth groups and any other Bible study that you're in. You don't want to stay as a student all the time. You want to absorb what the teacher's teaching you. You want to learn what the teacher's learn, teaching you. You want to apply what the teacher's teaching you. You want to become so efficient in the Word of God that you'll be able to teach someone. You say, but I'm not a teacher. You have the opportunity to teach someone somewhere. I guarantee you there'll be somebody less learned in the Scripture along the way. It could be a co-worker, could be a grandchild, could be one of your children, it could be your spouse, it could be a neighbor. There'll be somebody that doesn't know the Word of God like you know the Word of God and you'd be ready to teach them. And that's what the apostles were doing. They were pouring themselves into the people, teaching them from the Scriptures, teaching them from their experience, teaching them everything that Jesus had poured into their lives. These were qualified teachers. Amen? You don't get any better than the apostles to teach. So they had the best of the teachers and they were teaching the people. The apostle Paul picked up on this principle in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. He says, the things that you have learned or heard of me in the midst of many, he says, you shall... You shall entrust these things to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. You see what Paul is saying? He's saying, he's saying to Timothy and to those who were following him, he says, now the things you've heard me teach among many people, now you learn it so that you in turn can teach other faithful men who will in turn teach other people. The church is blessed with teachers but the church should never stop growing teachers. Amen? We should always be equipping. Listen, we got preschoolers who need to learn to be nurtured in the Word of God. we got children that need to be nurtured and learn the Word of God. Praise God, one day we'll have youth again and they'll be ready to absorb the truth of the Word. We need teachers. We need teachers of women. We need teachers of men. We need teachers to teach the Word of God. We need teachers out in the community. To share the Word of God. Hey, listen, that early church was devoted to discipleship and learning the Word of God. They were serious about the Word of God. Was Jesus serious about the Word of God? Sure He was. In John eight thirty one, Jesus told His disciples, He says, If you continue in My Word, you will be My disciples indeed. And He says, And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. You know, nothing breaks a preacher's heart more than to see ignorant church members falling into slavery to all kinds of sinful vices out there when they can be free. It's amazing the people that are enslaved by addictions and people that are enslaved by guilt and people enslaved by bad relationships and people enslaved by cultural influences. Listen, you were born again. You were born to be free. Jesus says, get in my word. He says, abide in my word. Breathe my word. Learn my word. Ruminate on my word. You stay in my word. You will grow in my word. And the word will give you the truth and the truth will make you free. Are you free? You can be. You should be. And in that early church, you better believe they were. Well, I need to move along because it was a church devoted to fellowship. You know, contrary to the thinking, the modern thinking of many of the church growth people, the church is not institutional. The church is not organizational. The body of Christ is relational, ladies and gentlemen. And the church understood that. They enjoyed sweet fellowship. 
They enjoyed sweet fellowship with God. The most important relationship that you and I can enjoy on this side of eternity is the relationship that we have with God. And it was through the Spirit, the powerful presence of the Spirit of God that created a sense of awe that the people were drawn closer to God. Look with me there in verse 43. Then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Listen, these are the sign gifts. God anointed the apostles with special gifts that enabled them to do powerful miracles that were signs, they were, they were given by God to authenticate the church. Because the church is brand new. It was just starting out. And we'll see those as we continue through the book of Acts. But these powerful signs not only got the attention of the church members, it got the attention of the world around them too. To say this, this new movement is not just a religion. It is a work of God. Let us show you some of the signs. Now I realize there are some charlatans out there and phonies that are trying to recreate so-called signs and, and miracles and things like that. Listen, it's a proven fact through the history of the church that after the apostolic age, the sign gifts went away. When the, when the church was blessed by God to have the canon of the Scriptures, listen, you don't need any more evidence. The complete Word of God will stand on its own testimony. You don't need so-called sign miracles today. You say, but oh, I saw it with my own eyes on TV. You know, brother so-and-so just raised this person right up out of a wheelchair. Hallelujah. Oh, don't believe everything your eyes will see, ladies and gentlemen. Don't forget that Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's magicians recreated phenomena that look like miracles right there. Listen, the devil can do anything to counterfeit the work of God. But the sign gifts were authentic. They are documented. They were given by God for the purpose of authenticating that early church. And you better believe it got attention. It created a great sense of awe. Listen, when's the last time you had a sense of awe? You say, well, I, I, we don't have any miracles happening today. If we had some miracles, boy, I'd be in awe. And I, I, I'd really be respecting God and all that. Let me ask you, is there any greater miracle than to see a lost, depraved, unregenerate, hell-bound sinner touched by the, the gospel message and, and given faith by the Spirit of God to place his faith and trust in Jesus Christ and to go from being a slave of the devil to become a child of God? Listen, is there any greater miracle than salvation? And God is still in the business of saving souls. And we need to be about it ourselves. Oh, listen, they saw the presence of God by these powerful signs of the apostles. And they saw this in their times, in their private and corporate prayer time. And in the Lord's Supper, the times where they were in the presence of God's people. And they were praying and, and felt the presence of God and sensed the movement of the Spirit. And let me tell you, when we gather around the Lord's table for the Lord's Supper, listen, this is a powerful time to experience the presence of God. He's here. Jesus said, Lo, I'll never leave you. I'm with you always, even to the end of the ages. He's here. We can experience His presence. They enjoyed a sweet fellowship with the Lord. He, he had ascended into heaven. That was a done deal. It was a fact. But then He sent His Holy Spirit. And His Holy Spirit manifested His presence. And the people, every time they gathered, they looked forward to that. They yearned for that. Not only did they enjoy a sweet fellowship with the Lord, but they enjoyed a sweet fellowship with other believers. Look at verse 44. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. You talk about transformed lives. 
People were giving up whatever they needed to give up. They sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Now let me clarify here. This wasn't the origin of the hippie movement, communal living. We don't need to sell all our houses and all of us buy a big tent village and live in a commune or nothing like that. That's not what it's implied. It wasn't like they had a wholesale yard sale and sold everything and then all moved in together. No, no. It says that they sold their possessions as the needs arose. If a person saw that there was a need of a brother or sister in the church and they had something they could sell to, to take care of that need, they did. And that created a wonderful spirit. They unselfishly shared their possessions with one another. Folks, that's nothing new. That's nothing new. Listen to what John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. See if this doesn't parallel what was happening in that early church. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. John says, By this we know love, because He laid down His life for us. We also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And that's exactly what the early church was doing. They were giving up their possessions. They were making sure if there was a brother or sister in the church that had a genuine need, they'd do whatever they needed to do. Sell whatever they had to take care of that need. They looked after each other. We probably can do a little bit better in that department. You know, it's a shame that the church has turned to the government to take care of the needy, the hurting in our society. First of all, the government has no business in that kind of work because they're totally inefficient. And they, do it out, they don't do it out of compassion. The ones that ought to be out there helping the, need, the, the, the homeless and helping the needy and helping those who are abused should be the church, the people who have the love of God in them. But the church has been so, so preoccupied with its own little kingdom and their own little comfort and taking care of their own pleasure and accumulating their own material possessions that they've just handed over the ministry of taking care of the hurting and the needy to the government. God help us. God help us. But this early church, let me tell you something. They were eager to get together. You sense that in verse 44? Verse 45? They, they loved coming together. They embraced every opportunity to be together in community. And I think about so many so-called Christians today who will take any flimsy excuse. And I emphasize flimsy. Any flimsy excuse. Why not to be in church? You probably remember that old song that the cathedral sang years ago called Excuses, Excuses. You'll hear them every day. Excuses, excuses. The devil will give them so that people stay away. Listen, don't make up excuses. Think of reasons to be together. Look for opportunities to be together. That's what the early church model. As we look further and we get ready to close, it was a church devoted to worship and witness. In verse 46, so continuing daily with one accord. You know, that's familiar. Back in chapter 1, verse 14, that's what they were doing in that prayer room, in that upper room. They were together in prayer in one accord. The church must function from unity. We must be in one accord. We must be in one spirit, the spirit of Christ. We must be in one mind, the mind of Christ. We must be united in one love, the love of Christ. And when we are, we're like this church. We can continue daily with one accord. And you'll notice it says, in the temple. The early church went to church. I mean, why shouldn't they? The temple was where you worship, right? 
As far as we know, they weren't expelled from the temple all the way up to the time that it was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. Early Christians went to the temple. Now, later, with the Jewish persecution, they were banned from the synagogues because of the persecution of the Jews. So that early, that early church, those early believers, man, they couldn't wait. Let's go to the temple, man. Let's observe the hours of prayer. And there was a reason behind that. You see, the early church was not a secret mystery religion. There were some, history records, you know, that met in shrouds of darkness and did their secret rituals and had their secret handshakes and, and all of that. There, there were those mystery religions that were practiced in secret and you had codes and you, if you were a member of that, you didn't tell people, you know, it was a, you know, kind of like a, 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 a private club. And I'll say this, this is my conviction, ladies and gentlemen, I don't think a brother or sister in Christ, a child of God, has any business belonging to any organization that is shrouded in secrecy. I frown upon the Masons. I frown upon organizations like that with their secret rituals. I frown upon the, 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 the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. They got their secret rituals. They, you can only go into the temple if you're a Mormon of certain standards and certain height. Listen, they've got their secrecies too. I, I frown upon, and I, I say, beware of the kingdom halls. Have you ever noticed the Jehovah Witnesses kingdom halls? One I saw the other day doesn't have a single window in it. Well, they get back in there and they do their brainwashing behind these closed doors and, 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 and that's where they do their work. Not the church. Not the early believers. Man, they were, they were public. They went to the temple. They gathered together in the midst of all the other people there in the temple. And what do they do? They worshiped the Lord. They testified. They witnessed about the new wonderful relationship that they had with Jesus Christ. And so there, they were very public about their love for the Lord. Because you see, like their Lord, they enjoyed the temple. It was their Father's house of prayer. Why shouldn't they be there? What better place to worship and, and, and to pray to God? It wasn't a chore for them to be there. It wasn't an empty ritual. It was a wonderful expression of their relationship. Oh, listen, the early church worshipped. They were worshipping. They were devoted. Their love for the Lord their joy and their unity uh, was so attractive to the world around them. All the people that watched around them, they said, man, these Christians are something different. I used to know old Josiah over there. He's not the same man he used to be. He used to be cranky and tight and, you know, and, and irritable. Look at him now, jumping in joy and praising the Lord, giving his offerings. I remember Sister Elizabeth over there. She used to be the gossip of the community and, and did all these shady things. But look at her now. She's, she's loving people. She's giving uh, unselfishly. Oh, you just see is a change in her. It was a public witness in the temple complex. And, and one of the things that was so impressive about that early church to the world looking on, and that was primarily Jews, one of the most impressive things was the love that they had for one another. Isn't that what Jesus said in John 13, 34 and 35? He says, A new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. As I have loved you, so shall you love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Early historians, such as the, the philosopher Aristides back in the second century, writing to a king, one of the things that he wrote in that letter to the king about the Christians, he says, O king, I just noticed these Christians, they're full of life. 
They're charitable. They're honest. When people do them wrong, they don't do wrong back. They, they make sure they pay their debts. They're good citizens. They love one another. Oh, how they love one another. They love strangers. They take people off the road and welcome them into their home. Even those who own slaves, oh king, they treat them as if they're their brother, if they are fellow believers. Oh, they witnessed. They witnessed through their public love for one another. The early Christians understood the principle of Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. When the writer of Hebrews says, Consider one another. Let us consider one another so as to stir up love and good works. Not forsaken the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some. But exhorting one another. And so much the more as we see the day approaching. Oh dear Christians, church members. Look for every opportunity you have to come together with fellow believers. And when you do, look for every opportunity, every possible way that you can stir up love in the hearts of other believers. Look for every opportunity where you can encourage and stimulate one another to do good works in the name of Jesus Christ as a witness to the community. And then exhort one another. Oh, it just tears me up when I hear Christians speaking so negatively to one another. Well, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. And I don't know what I'm going to do about Obama. And you know, and oh, it's just awful day after drudgery, drudgery. Listen, say something positive. How about this? Look up, brother. Look up, sister. Jesus is coming back. We're going to go to heaven one day. We'll all this leave. We'll leave it behind. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I've seen some people that are faithful, dedicated Christians. Praise the Lord more. And I see you as a patient than I have some Christians sitting in the pew in good health. Shame on us. Okay, I got to move. By His Spirit and through His church, God drew people to Himself. That's what it says. Look at verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people. That's the church. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Do you understand how church growth works? Just be church. Just be biblical church. Do the things that they were doing. Do the things and have the Spirit they had. Imitate that early church. They were filled with the Spirit of God. They welcomed the movement and the guidance of the Spirit of God. And God added to their numbers. And I'm convinced if we commit ourselves to be in the true body of Christ, God will add to our numbers.